Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. And hello, I am Azaria Keys, and I am also occupying Lenape land. We're really grateful to be joining you today for this Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. Yes. And today's topic is a continuation and a deeper exploration of last week's episode, hashtag me too, how pervasive and permissive power dynamics create cultures of harassment and abuse. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, please go back and listen to it because we'll be building on this very important multidimensional topic of sexual abuse and harassment in the workplace. Yes, and we'll also be including work from home environments, which I personally found to be very disturbing and a little surprising. And Azaria, I was surprised by that too, but also in some ways not. Having come from male prevalent industries, I witnessed a lot of unhealthy power dynamics towards women and people of color. And I could see how these issues are issues of power and privilege and require changes on a systemic level. Darylise, what was it like reporting on this topic for you? It was hard, I would say, and also hopefully healing. I've spoken publicly about this before, but I'm a survivor of sexual abuse, not in a workplace setting, but in childhood, adolescence, and in my 20s, which, by the way, is not uncommon. Those who experience early childhood abuse are far more likely to be re-victimized later on in life. But to answer your question, for me, It felt really empowering to be able to speak about these issues as systemic issues and to look at how they operate in workplace settings and then to feel like our work at the Demystifying Diversity podcast might make a difference in helping employers to think about structuring their workplaces to be safer and more supportive. So I'll say that in that way, it felt really healing and really empowering, but it was also just difficult listening to those who'd been victimized and oppressed at work, especially in this particular arena, which I know has such lasting ramifications on people's lives. I could only imagine how difficult that was. Listening to the personal accounts as well as the secondhand stories really made an impact. And I'd imagine it was moving to hear them directly. But one of the things that struck me was how these stories, while significant, aren't merely issues of individuals. They speak to larger issues. That's one thing that I was hoping would come through in this episode, so I'm really glad that that stood out to you. And I'm glad that we included this topic because these are systemic issues that impact individuals of all gender identities and that are issues of power dynamics. And I know that we wanted to talk a little bit about why this particular topic and why it was so important to include. And I'll just say that for me, one of the reasons that this topic felt really important was because the more that our workplaces are structured in such a way to keep a significant segment of the population disadvantaged and to keep a significant segment of the population not able to operate and move with the same agency and autonomy, the less diverse our ideas are going to be, the less diverse our products. Sexual abuse and workplace sexual harassment have widespread ramifications in the lives of people at work and at home. And so this topic in a lot of ways, feels like it has far-reaching implications beyond our workplaces, really into the fiber of society. And I'm so glad that we were able to incorporate that reporting as part of this season. Yeah. And I'd just like to add to that, Darylise, that for Sedwick, 
and this will get talked about in some of the episodes or the interviews, but it becomes a bit more of a preventative measure on our end because working at a university in a business school where we are responsible for the education of students who will one day be employees in these workplaces, it was very important that we discuss such a topic because eventually we want to share this episode with faculty who will use it in their classes. And that, in my mind, is a preventative measure to make sure that we're educating these students about the realities of workplace culture that we would love to change over time, but certainly we're not there yet. So it's really important that we equip them with that information before they go into the the work world. Indeed. And I think the topic is extremely important, but I kind of have a follow-up question to it. How can our listeners reconcile that individual versus systemic aspect of this issue? I think it's clear it's important for abusers to face significant consequences without reducing harassment to this bad apple worldview. So how do employers or employees balance the individual and the systemic aspects of this problem? That's something that I don't think there's a clear cookie cutter answer (laughs) to. Unfortunately, I think that one of the things that we need to be looking at is how do we create cultures that promote equitable power dynamics? And how do we create cultures that promote disclosure and that, you know, have a swift mechanism in place for dealing with abuse before it rises to the level of, and I don't want to quantify harms because all harms are bad, but these egregious violations to personal autonomy. So I think that the one thing that employers need to be doing is creating systems that make treating people of all identities a priority, treating them well a priority. And then on top of that, even within the healthiest systems, there will be people that misuse and abuse their power, you know, people that do harm and do wrong. But I think when we look at some of the egregious abuses that have happened across industries where individual abusers were able to operate unchecked for years and in many cases decades, what we see are systems of support that arose around them to enable that bad behavior to continue. And so I would say that even in the best systems, you know, the most effective systems, there probably will be people that violate one another's bodily autonomy and that do things that require justice and intervention. But what I think we won't see are those issues of repeated violations by perpetrators to multiple individuals. And so for me, the systemic prevents the reach of the individual, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there will not be individual perpetrators that need to be dealt with and that do things that require intervention. Switching gears, tell me a little bit about how you all selected the the guests and the voices for this episode. So I think this was one that was really interesting in that most of them in his area, you jump right in here after this, but I know we worked collaboratively behind the scenes and most of the other episodes that we created, the guests could go anywhere, right? In in some ways, we chose people based on their expertise. But in the course of the discussion, it was clear that like, oh, this person is a communication expert, but they also have a lot of training in the DEI field. And a lot of voices were put in in a number of different places. And while some of that did occur here too, I think with this particular issue of workplace sexual harassment and abuse, people really had a deep specialty in these issues. And so it made it in some ways a little more streamlined selecting 
guest voices and then also people who had personal experiences of being abused. You know, like we had to find people that have broken that silence, right? And that have shared their stories. And so in some ways, I think it made it easier to find guests for this episode because we found people who are already very open about their experiences in the workplace or the research that they're doing. And that said, I think one of the things that I was really surprised by was just how pervasive sexual harassment in the workplace is and some of the statistics and some of the experiences, but also how the aura of shame and secrecy surrounding this makes it so that far less people are willing to be public about their experiences. And I think the fact that we found people who were willing to be public about these experiences is what allowed hopefully this episode to be so rich and so informative. I would certainly agree. I think that for Sedwick, this was probably one of the easier episodes to select voices for because our founding director, Leora Eisenstadt, has a great wealth of expertise in law behind sexual harassment. And so she called on her network, some here at Fox and others um, like Stephanie Vogt, who we'll hear from, who did a presentation for Sedwick. But this is certainly one of those topics where you don't just want to bring in somebody who might have some sort of expertise or can speak to some portion of it. You really want to either have someone who has lived personal experience and is willing to share their story or someone who has really devoted years to kind of looking at the research and familiarizing themselves with the seriousness of such a subject. So it was easier to select the voices because we had Lior's network and that was great. (laughs) I know that this is work that Leora is highly familiar with. It For me, it, it wasn't necessarily. And so I think it made a significant impact on me. And I just love to know from the two of you, what were some of the more impactful moments, you know, whether they'd be stories or takeaways from this episode? I know right off the top, two hit me. And I, I guess this one is technically five, but it was the five Ds, distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct, the five Ds of bystander intervention, was super impactful for me because as someone from the outside, if you do notice it, I think a lot of people would have that issue of what do I do? What What is that next step? And depending on going through those five Ds, once you learn what all those are, you can do the one that fits you best, what's most comfortable for you to be able to actually help someone and move forward. So I loved that. And another one was actually something that you mentioned was intent doesn't always determine impact. And I love that statement and what it means and fully agree with it. But it was really eye-opening to hear all of that, the five Ds, some of the, the quote I just mentioned. Because again, coming from someone who hasn't experienced it personally, I'm in a new world of understanding what others are going through and is able to learn a lot from how to be an ally, how to be someone to support others in this space. I'm excited to share. I've already made a graphic for our page with the five Ds on it, and we're gonna, we'll are gonna make sure to post that with this episode's release. Yeah, th- those are some of my takeaways. Zach, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth, the intent versus impact. That's actually something that I live by in general to hold myself accountable because in personal relationships, sometimes I'm reflecting on an argument or something that I had and the person saying, well, when you did this, it felt like this. And I was like, yeah, but that's not what I meant. That that wasn't my intent. And it's the very same here where when we're talking about coworkers and managers, and sometimes maybe their intent is to just 
say a joke or give a compliment. We kind of talk about that in this episode, but understanding before you open your mouth and say that or do that action, not just thinking about what your personal intent is, but how that impact will be received by the person on the other end of that. So I was so glad that that was brought up. Um, And two other points that really stood out to me. One was Chairwoman Burroughs talking about this idea of remote work and how some of us were like, yeah, you know, harassment's probably down now that people get to be in the comfort of their own home. But she talked about the fact that, well, for those people who still had to show up to work every day, One, there's less witnesses, which I hadn't even thought about that. That was pretty powerful and probably like really daunting for those individuals who are experiencing some form of harassment and know that there are less people in the office to witness this happening to me. And then two, that because people just in general were worried about job security with so many layoffs and uncertainty, that there was even more fear of retaliation if they added this extra component of reporting harassment to their managers. That makes you even more of a target for retaliation, which there are numbers to support that. So that stood out to me. And then lastly, Leora being the expert voice for this this episode, she said something along the lines of the law only protects victims if they report in a certain way. And the victims need to be educated on how to go forward and reporting their their harassment. And that feels heavy because as someone who might not be familiar with the laws, what do I do when this is happening to me? And I think I'm doing the right thing by reporting it. And then I come to find out that I didn't report it correctly or I should have been doing X, Y, and Z, taking notes. I know the law is there to protect folks, but it kind of was a little disheartening to think that somebody who's already dealing with the weight of such heavy experience has to then sit there and calculate in their mind, am I taking the right steps so that the law will take me serious and will hear me out? That was disheartening to hear. So yeah, Darylise, I would love to hear what your takeaways were from from this episode. Yeah. I mean, my gosh, you all had such really impactful ones for me. And in addition, I would say to that was you mentioned the disheartening nature of needing to report in the correct way as area. And for me, what was really disheartening was thinking about the amount of shame and secrecy and internalized oppression that survivors often experience. And I guess what I would say is that one of the things that I would hope could become a way of validation would be, because I felt that much the same way about like, oh my gosh, you've got to document, et cetera. But one of the things that I've found is that the documentation opens a person's eyes to the fact that what is being done to them is not okay. My heart bleeds for anyone that has been through this situation, especially because there's such complicated power dynamics at play. And I just want them to be okay on an emotional level, right? And I don't know that our system is equipped to do that. Like, I think we've got some measures to make sure that people are not retaliated against. We've got some measures to make sure that people are able to find different workplaces. But like, what do we do about the emotional impact and the lifelong ramifications of these experiences or the impacts to career trajectory? You know, if someone's working in a certain industry and experiences sexual abuse or harassment in that industry, they may no longer feel safe going back into that industry, even at another employer's. So those are the kinds of things I thought about, like, well, what happens after the incident or after the series of experiences? 
And how do we as a society hold people? And I think we talk a lot about holding the abusers accountable, but how do we hold the people that have experienced this in a way that does allow them to return to their own sense of agency and empowerment? So I I don't have any answers with that, but I just left feeling questioning that and wondering how we build systems for restoration of selfhood and personhood. And yeah, that was just something that I'm still kind of grappling with. But you all pointed to so many moments and quotes. And I'm wondering, are there any moments or quotes from the episode that you didn't share that you'd want to talk about or highlight more in this moment? One thing that I can can highlight that kind of stuck out for me as well was the element of escalation, that early intervention is major because abuse pretty much always escalates. And you can't wait to intervene because it can escalate to a serious level. It can become violent. So I thought that was a big key is like noticing it very early on and addressing it. I think sometimes some of those small aggressions and things that are happening can get overlooked in certain cultures. And that can't happen because of where it can end up. So I thought that was something really important to highlight is that even if someone might want to say, oh, this wasn't that serious or it just happened once, that's still too much. What about you, Azaria? Yeah, I mean, there were so many moments. Stephanie, as I had mentioned previously, had done an entire presentation for Sedwick. It was a really intimate presentation with students. And I think her story every time hits me so hard. And so even just hearing the brief little bits during her interview for the podcast, that was, it's almost like you're so proud of her and every victim who comes forward every single time. So I really just want to shout out Mm -hmm. Stephanie specifically. All voices on the episode were amazing. But Stephanie, when we were preparing for her event, it was clear that every time someone comes out about their story, it's like peeling the bandaid off the wound each time. And that can have its own emotional toll. So Very proud of her again for coming out. And then the other quote that stood out to me, you were sort of listing off statistics. And one of them was that, I'm going to kind of say this incorrectly probably, but 40% of women get away or leave harassment by leaving their jobs or their industries. And that made me mad, not at the women, but the fact that, no, why are you having to leave? Or why has society put this pressure on such situations that makes you feel like the only way you can not experience such harassment is by leaving your current job that you might love outside of this occurrence right? or leaving an industry that you love. That, and I think Leora had mentioned it at several points that when she first got interested in this work, it's because she realizes how it really disenfranchises victims of sexual harassment that you, and other forms of harassment, that it doesn't just happen and then you deal with this singular situation and then life goes on. It really like upends your entire life. And that makes me so upset that the victims of these disgusting acts have to like really change their entire life. And then where are the perpetrators? Do you stay at the company? I think there's a statistic out there that says a lot of them do if they're not caught. And that just, that was upsetting for me. So if anything, this this episode really pointed to the fact that like, there are so many areas in which we've come such a long way, but the fact that these stories are still so prevalent, it's disappointing that we haven't advanced more in, in holding people accountable for how they treat others. It's really disappointing. 
Well, and I mean, the the mass exit of certain people and individuals who hold certain identities from various industries has real ramifications for those individuals and also for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, right? Like certain industries that are not hospitable to individuals who fall outside of male identity, right? Or that masculine privilege, if we're looking to make those industries more diverse, and yet individuals who fall outside of that realm show up in the space and are not safe, you know, in that space, then of course, those industries are not going to be more diverse. And so I think looking at from a holistic standpoint of this has real impacts to the individuals who are victimized and also to the diversity in the workplace that people claim to be invested in, right? Like it's not an isolated instance or set of instances. These are systemic issues. So I was struck by some statistics as well, such as the fact that 81% of women and 43% of men have been sexually harassed in their lifetime. And 38% of women have been harassed at work. 78% of trans and or non-binary individuals have been harassed in their lifetime, with 47% of trans and non-binary adults having experienced sexual assault at some point. So I just want to take a moment to talk about what these types of statistics say about our culture and our society and about power and privilege dynamics? Because I I think that's really important. I might have an unpopular opinion on this, but I think our nation as a whole has a toxic masculinity issue. And I think it, even when you look at the gun violence occurrences across our nation, it's rare that you hear that it's someone other than a man doing these heinous crimes. Not to say that there aren't others out there that do not identify as man that do egregious crimes. But I think at the end of the day, we have a serious toxic masculinity issue. Patriarchy, all of it plays a role in in these occurrences. And it's not to say, again, you just gave a statistic of male victims as well. So it's not to say that men can't be the victims, but I think our country and really the world seems to be rooted in a history where men can behave any type of way that they want and they know that they won't be held accountable oftentimes. And it has just become so pervasive. And it's really scary because to the legal definition of what sexual harassment is defined as and how it can be, you know, how these people can be held accountable and it, the fact that it's really a play on power, that is scary because it really does put people in a position where that's why your whole life gets uprooted because this person has a certain level of power over you that makes you feel as though you can't you can't come forward and and talk about what's happening to you and so it just I think it's a toxic masculinity issue. I think that's one layer to it. I think accountability is a part of it as well. But it just points to the fact that this issue, it's been a historical issue and it still hasn't come as far as I would like to see it. I I just feel a little disappointed after hearing this episode because it's that reminder that we have not advanced as far as we should Mm -hmm. have. 
I wholeheartedly agree. I also think that one of the things, you know, when you talk about advancement, I try to remind myself that every present moment is preceded by past moments, a series of previous actions and experiences and relationships and dynamics. And so what I think about a lot is that there's a lot of research out there that shows that people who are victimized are more likely than to become offenders and to become perpetrators. And I I just think a lot about how if these are issues of power, which they are, and I agree that there is a culture of toxic masculinity, a lot of men who then go on to abuse people are people who themselves were abused, whether that be sexually or in terms of violence in the home. And so I think that these issues really follow us through every age and stage of life and that the way that people are socially conditioned to not talk about things that happen to them, the way that certain people are socialized not to cry, not to exhibit sensitivity or emotional vulnerability. I think that that is something that harms perpetrators as well as victims. And also I try to remind myself that untreated, unhealed victims are either more likely to become perpetrators in the future or are more likely to be re-victimized in the future. Mm -hmm. And so I think that while I believe in a culture of accountability, I also believe that as a society, we owe it to one another and to ourselves to create systems of healing and systems of support from a young age onward, because often by the time that people do get the power to become offenders, right? Like they've had years and years of untreated trauma and pain that then I think needs an outlet. And that outlet often finds an expression against someone who does not, not that anyone deserves it, but someone who didn't do anything to put themselves in that position. So I think these are like super complicated issues. And I definitely want to acknowledge that those who perpetrate deserve to be punished. But sometimes that toxic masculinity and patriarchy culture is a punishment to them almost in advance of when they act out in these egregious ways against those who have less gender privilege, if that makes Mm. sense. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. 
Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world local and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. And Zach, what about you? I mean, how do those statistics land for you? I think it's clear my vocabulary isn't quite as extensive. So I'll say it in the way that it makes me feel is, is I'm annoyed and I feel like there's too many people making dumb decisions. And I, I say it from that perspective of kind of knowing right from wrong. And a lot of these perpetrators know what they're doing is wrong. And it's kind of clear because if they were in an open conversation discussing their actions, they wouldn't. They don't want anyone else to know that this is what they've done. So if you know right from wrong, why can't you just do right? And I know it sounds very simple in the way I'm saying it, but I have that control. I know right from wrong and I know how to do things right. There's been times where I've wanted to do something that was wrong and I did not because I can control myself. And that ability to not control yourself, whether it be in a work setting or not, maybe that is impacted by past trauma or your lived experience. And is unfortunate in those scenarios. I, I want people to get help. I want people to get therapy. I want to get them to get whatever they need so that they are in complete control of themselves and don't do things or perpetrate on others some of these heinous acts and crimes, really. I know it's a wish that I don't know if it'll ever come true, but I just wish folks could make the right decisions in every scenario. And again, it's it's, it's wishful thinking, but that's kind of what jumped out to me. It's, it's surprising that there's that high percentages of people abusing others. Like I, I did I wasn't aware that the numbers were that great. It's a do better for me. And you know, I think us being a part of this podcast, putting information out there and educating folks is a small piece of that. But there's a lot of work a lot of folks have to do that are keeping it hidden that they even need help. Again, whether it be therapy or mental help or anything like that or overcoming past traumas, a lot of folks keep that stuff in the closet and then like you said, end up perpetrating against others. 
it's sad to know that the, the numbers are like that. And, and I, again, I hope we can be a small piece of making it better. But yeah, it just annoys me that folks are just making wrong decisions out there. And I just wish it was easier for them all to do right. So switching gears there, at least tell me, was there anything else that didn't make it into this episode that you wish you were able to include? Yeah, absolutely. I really would have wanted to include and explore some workplace settings where the industries are structured in a way where exploitation is more sanctioned on the surface. So some of the restaurant industries and places where they might have a a requirement or an expectation that certain people in a certain body type show up a certain way and be flirtatious with customers, right? So like, I'm not going to name those particular restaurant chains, but there are restaurant chains that do that. Also looking at sex workers and the protections there. I do, we touch on that a little bit in one of the episodes that centers around law later on in the season. But for me, really looking at how do we put protections in place for people whose jobs themselves carry an inherent power dynamic that is built into the structure and the system and what type of sexual harassment is happening in those places and what is acknowledged as sexual harassment. And that just felt like more than we had the capacity to do in this limited episode. But I just want to call out that that's something that we did not delve into and something that I think is very, very important to think about. And I'm not saying that sex work is inherently exploitative in all conditions or that sexual harassment is an experience that every person has had if they're working in a place where those gender power dynamics are more on the surface and more agreed upon. But I'm just saying that that's a space where often there is not the visibility that I think could be very protective of people. And so I would have wanted to spend a little time on that. And maybe we will in a future season. But Azaria, what about you? Were there things you might have wanted to know more about that we didn't speak about in this episode? Certainly, but I want to start with what just came to mind when you were speaking. And I think something that's really important is elevating the experiences of people that work in service industries. You kind of touched on restaurants, but actually um, I read a statistic one time. I don't have the number, but I remember hearing that people that work at hotels, your room service that comes in and changes your sheets and whatnot, they are often women of color. There's a high rate of harassment towards those those workers. At a business school, I'm constantly having conversations with people about diversifying and broadening our, our definition of what is business. Technically, like it's sort of all business, not just corporate America, because there are other industries that have workplace culture that we're not addressing because it doesn't fall within the the bounds of corporate America, finance, accounting, all of that. But, you know, as someone who worked at a grocery store, that's a very interesting workplace culture to look at because not only do you have the power dynamic of the manager of the store, the bosses, and the employees within that grocery store, but then you have a very interesting power dynamic between the customer who is always right and the employee themselves. And what's interesting there is that when you're working in a grocery store, especially like as a cashier, the amount of touch point, like the the exposure you have to several different people throughout the day that 
you're experiencing a very interesting power dynamic with really makes you vulnerable. I mean, I can't tell you how many times either myself or a coworker when I was working at different grocery stores had customers say very off-putting comments about our appearances and we're just supposed to kind of flow with it unless it's a risk to my physical health in that very moment. And that's problematic. And so I would love to elevate the voices and experiences of people service industries because that is workplace culture as well. And I think that gets left out of this conversation often. And then lastly, I would just say that Leora and just in general, we should do an entire podcast, not even just one episode, but an entire podcast on the law behind sexual harassment and different forms of harassments. Because when Leora said like, there's a right way to report and how that made me feel a little stressed out because I don't know that right way. I'm sure there are others who feel the same way as I do. And I think that it would be great to have episodes devoted to explaining. And Leora mentioned different types of harassment. And it would be interesting to devote episodes to understanding what those forms are and how are you supposed to report for this one versus this one? And so I think educating listeners on their options and how they need to be prepared should they encounter an experience as a victim or someone who witnesses something happening to another person. So definitely a lot of opportunities. And there's a lot of layers to harassment in general. So I think we can't do it justice in this one episode, but I think it's good to just be having these conversations in general to really kind of remove a lot of that shame you were talking about, Darylise. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you highlighted that. And no, we can't do that justice. However, that said, we will put some links to the show notes for some resources for folks to maybe go and read and see videos and maybe some organizations that do work in this space, just so that folks that are experiencing this or think they might be experiencing this or think that they may be perceiving some of these culture dynamics in their workplace as a bystander or uh, who wants to become an upstander, like we will put some resources in these Q&A show notes specifically so that people can use this perhaps as a springboard to getting some support. Awesome. So before we go deeper, I would love for us to move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode. Darylise, you had the pleasure of interviewing my boss, Leora. <laughs> Leora Eisenstadt is the founding director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture. She is also a legal studies professor here at the Fox School of Business. Yeah, so we will play that interview with you all, that session of the Q&A where Leora answers some listener questions and I get to speak with her. And then Zach Azaria and I will be back to speak with all of you. So make sure to listen. Mystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark. Invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? So, Leora, thank you again so much for doing this and for all your contributions to this season and this podcast. I'm so grateful that we could amplify your voice in this way. My pleasure. I'm so excited to be with you again. 
I would love to know for you why sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace is such an important point for you personally and why people should be so invested in it professionally. Yeah, you know, I got interested in this in law school. I originally wanted to do domestic violence work. Something about violence against women was really motivating for me. And I ended up doing a clinic on civil rights law. And I handled two sexual harassment cases as a student. And I I just really started to see the impact it had on women's careers and lives. And the way in which they were unable to be equal participants in society because of it and what the law could do, right? So it sort of showed me how the law can be so helpful in this area. It's not everything, but it's certainly a start. And so that got me sort of on the path. And then when I switched from being a litigator to being a professor, it felt to me like I had this platform suddenly to educate women and men about hopefully before it starts to affect them in a personal way, right? Not everyone. I certainly have students who have been the victims of harassment, but for a lot of them, I'm getting to them before they've had these real experiences and I get to prepare them for what to expect in the workplace, what the demands are, what the law requires of them, and how to be prepared if they do find themselves in the position of victim of harassment. Two of the things that really stood out to me from our first interview together and from all of the interviews that I did for this particular episode were that this is a systemic issue and it's an issue of power more so, I would say, than an issue of sex, or certainly it is an issue where gender has implications, but it seems like the systemic nature and the power dynamics were just what came forth so abundantly for me. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a point I try to make over and over in my class, and also particularly in my writing and my research, that this is about power. This is about workplace culture. This is not about one individual. You can't fix every single person in the workplace. You can't train everyone to behave appropriately all the time, right? This is about having the right systems in place, having healthy workplace cultures. And in terms of the the power issue, absolutely. I mean, I view sexual harassment as a tool that people use to push others down, right? To pull themselves up and to push others down. And It happens to be sexual harassment because it's often directed at members of one sex or one gender, or it's because the comments are of a sexual nature. Whatever it is, at least when it's women as the victims, it's viewing women as simply their appearances as opposed to their intellectual or work-related contributions. Well, and I think the research shows that individuals who are not male identified tend to be victimized at a higher rate, I think because of just the level of power and privilege that society imbues on people who happen to have been born, uh, you know, identified male as birth and continue that way throughout their lifetime. And so it feels like there is this gender hierarchy that becomes more and more visible the more that we start looking at the ways in which privilege and oppression play out and the ramifications that they have on people's lives and people's bodies. 
Absolutely. And I think, look, the research shows that sexual harassment happens more in sex segregated workplaces. And in those workplaces, it tends to be male identified workers in more senior positions and female identified workers in lower level positions. And so you have power dynamics already at play and sexual harassment is just another tool to keep that arrangement the way it already is. It's interesting. So something that came up for me is that as I was doing these interviews, I understood or saw more clearly some of the things in my past workplace experience that at the time didn't really send up my spidey senses. Like it just seemed like the course of doing business. But now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that really if I knew then what I knew now, I would have said something or I would have intervened in some way. And I'm curious for you, how has knowing what you now know and doing the research changed either your perspective on past workplace dynamics or the way that you establish dynamics today? It's a really good question. I think, and I have this conversation with people all the time. I I was just talking with someone who understood very much that she was a victim of sexual harassment, but viewed certain aspects of her time there as sexual harassment. And when she was telling me her full story, I was like, that is harassment. The early comments that you're talking about that you just viewed as, well, that's just how people talked in this workplace. No, that's unlawful harassment. So I think that is not an uncommon experience. And for decades, women thought that very egregious behavior was just the cost of doing business. And in terms of my own experience, I think that I have been lucky in some ways to not have been a true victim of sexual harassment in the places that I've worked. I think I also go into the places that I work with a very clear sense of who I am and how I expect people to behave around me. And I don't know that I say those things explicitly, but I'm pretty clear about what's important to me. And I think maybe I give off vibes. I'm so curious, what do you mean by true victim? I think that I've certainly been on a crowded bus where a man next to me began touching me when I was a teenager. Certainly I was a victim of harassment, right? But not in the workplace. And I think that I have been a victim of sex discrimination in various ways, but not sexual harassment. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I really appreciate the distinction between workplace sexual harassment and sexual harassment that happens perhaps outside of the workplace and the interconnectedness of money and providing for one's family and career advancement and all of those dynamics that are at play. So can you talk a little bit about any sort of sexual harassment or abuse is horrible and painful and is going to have ramifications on a person's lives. But how is workplace sexual harassment specifically its own dynamic? I think you hit on it when you talk about the power dynamics that are at play and the financial aspects that are at play. And what we're really seeing there is that the victim is in a much more vulnerable position because they need this job and they need the money that's coming in, and they are frightened of rocking the boat, and particularly in a workplace that has not made reporting easy or comfortable or clearly protected. And so those dynamics make it so that a lot of workplace 
workplace harassment goes unreported. The large majority of workplace harassment goes unreported. Yeah. And Chair Charlotte Burroughs of the EEOC shared for this episode that there is retaliation that often happens in the aftermath of reported abuse. And on top of that, the compounding factor is that people often are retaliated against for reporting and then abusers are often not punished or penalized. So how do you remain optimistic or should people remain optimistic about reporting? And how do you counsel people to follow those steps of making themselves safe or calling out the behavior when retaliation is a very real problem? Yeah, absolutely. Retaliation is probably the most common complaint that you see in terms of discrimination complaints, right? So race, gender, age, ethnicity, retaliation trumps all of them in terms of the numbers, usually. And I think that the key thing for workers is to be educated first on the law. What is actually unlawful? When does behavior rise to the level of unlawfulness? When can they come forward and expect to be protected by the law? Because that is not always a clear line. And then what is your workplace's policy on this and procedure? Because the law protects employers if the victim doesn't come forward in the right way. So getting educated about what to expect and what the law actually provides, and then what your employer sets out as the proper course for reporting, those are really key points. Because you might not want to report too early in your experience. You might actually have to wait until the behavior becomes what we call in the law severe or pervasive in order to be protected by the law. So can you, I mean, this is fascinating and I think people listening are going to really want to know more. I know that the law is a large umbrella and that there are so many different kinds of cases, but could you give an example either from when you were a litigator or an example that you might give to your students about how and when reporting would be useful and what the law might protect versus what the law might not protect, just so people can get a few examples knowing that it's by no means comprehensive. Yeah, it's not that it's comprehensive. It's that the law is not black and white. So the problem is what one judge views as severe might not be the same as what another judge views as severe. So what I mean by severe or pervasive, and that's an or, it has to either be severe or pervasive. It could be both, but either or in order to rise to the level of unlawful. And one court might view sexual touching, unwanted sexual touching. Someone touches your behind while making comments to you as severe enough to rise to that level of unlawful. Another court might say it only happened once. If it happens weekly for several months, I think you're pretty clear in the category of severe or pervasive. But one comment, a court is probably not going to say that's unlawful. Multiple comments over a period of time, now we're talking pervasive. But again, it's an interpretive art. And so there's no clear line necessarily. That is hugely helpful. You know, I think I'd love to move into our listener questions because our listeners wrote in with some really beautiful questions and remarks and observations. And I I also just want to say that I found it really impactful to me that 
this was an episode of a Q&A, and I don't think we've ever had a Q&A episode where people only wrote in and nobody called in. And I wonder if there's something about the, I don't know, the veil of secrecy and shame around surrounding sexual abuse. So I just kind of wanted to call that out and see if you had any feedback around that and then move into listener questions. I find that when you finally get down to it and are talking about it with people and they feel comfortable, lots of stories come out, lots of questions come out. But there is this layer of people not wanting to talk about it too much, not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to make an issue out of it. If someone's been successful, they don't want to unearth these things that have happened to them. If someone has not been successful, they don't want to blame it on that. There is a lot of shame that comes with this area of the law and of society. And so something has happened to just about everyone, but they're often not willing to talk about it until you get really comfortable. And I do want to also just say, just to go back to that past question that you asked, if you are concerned that you have been the victim of harassment and are not sure whether it's unlawful and are not sure whether to report to HR or to your manager or someone else, it's a good idea to consult with an attorney before coming forward because you just get a little bit more educated about the courts in your area and what to expect. So going this road alone is is a tough way to do it because most people don't have a large breadth of knowledge about the area. Thank you so much for saying that. One thing I want to add to that as well is Charlotte Burroughs talked about how when it comes to sexual harassment, especially in a workplace setting, and you shared about this as well, Leora, just now, there can be a lot of uncertainty and there can be a lot of feelings of, well, was this wrong? Did I misinterpret? Did I misconstrue? What exactly did happen? And people's memories can become not untrustworthy, I don't want to say, but a little bit fuzzy around the edges because these things do cause a lot of confusion. And so one thing that was suggested was to begin writing it down. So like, I think for people, it is very, very helpful to consult an attorney, talk to a trusted advisor, but also begin to document what is happening and when it's happening and how it's happening and who's there just because I think people can also be very dismissive about their own experiences. Like, well, it was a one-time thing or, oh, well, it's not that bad yet. But then I think the documentation brings things into stark relief and also talking to an attorney brings things into stark relief as well. A hundred percent. In fact, one of the key pieces of advice that I usually give is start keeping a log. Date, time, comments, who was it, where were you, were you in physical proximity to one another? Keep all of those details because you, you erase some of them. So contemporaneous logging is a really good way to just start at least and start to document what's been going on. Thank you so much. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com.
As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. So Ryan from Brooklyn wrote in and asked, what action should be taken if unwanted remarks are being made by colleagues and managers of the same sex? Is there any difference if the unwanted actions are same sex versus man to woman or woman to man? So it's a little hard for me to tell from that question if the unwanted remarks are of a sexual nature. So let's assume that they are. It's no different in the eyes of the law. Sexual harassment is sexual harassment, whether it's man to woman, woman to man, man to man, or woman to woman, or gender non-binary to anyone else, right? Or against someone who's gender non-binary. So the gender of the perpetrator and the victim are not essential to this question. And the Supreme Court has actually been quite clear about that. What makes something sexual harassment is if the comments are of a sexual nature, or if the comments or actions are directed only to members of one gender, or if they are related to the person's sex or gender. That's what makes it sexual harassment. You don't have to be attracted to the person to whom you are making the comments in order for it to be sexual harassment. So that's pretty clear. And so from the eyes of the law, absolutely not. It it can be sexual harassment either way. Now, if we're talking about comments that are sort of of a bullying nature, the law unfortunately does not prohibit that. So it has to be sexual harassment or racial harassment or harassment of some other discriminatory nature in order for the law to get involved. Got it. And then if that is happening to the action piece of Ryan's question, like what should people be doing? And I get that from the question too, it's not clear if it's, if remarks are being made by colleagues and managers, depending on someone's positionality, I think that might impact what actions they can take, right? Yeah. So there are different kinds of sexual harassment and there's quid pro quo sexual harassment where you're demanding sexual favors in response to something, or there is uh, hostile work environment harassment, which are typically the claims that get brought now, which are comments or behaviors created a hostile work environment in which I was not able to participate effectively. And the hostile work environment can be caused by a coworker or it can be caused by someone in a supervisory position. And the legal analysis is slightly different for either of those. The standards that we use are slightly different, but Both of them can be unlawful, regardless of who's doing it. And in terms of action, you know, we've talked about it. I think I would start with keeping a log, a detailed log. When it reaches a point of severity, right, or it's happening constantly, you might think at that point about reporting to HR or to whoever your company policy directs you to report to. That way you can protect yourself from retaliation and hopefully get some kind of response from management. But if you have questions at that point, that's maybe a good time to seek out some legal advice before you make that report. Because once you make that report, you've opened yourself up to vulnerability. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for the honesty too and the answer, because I think sometimes what I want to tell people from the advocacy space, I, I think it's good for people to know to know that there is some vulnerability going into that reporting, which doesn't mean don't do it. It just means protect and insulate yourself and get a lot of support and a lot of resources. And know your workplace. There are workplaces that will be wonderful when you report that will protect your identity, that will investigate seriously, that will deal with perpetrators the right way, right? There are great workplaces. There are also not good ones where reporting to HR will not protect you and you will expose yourself to to some vulnerability there, to potential retaliation. And if you report before the behavior is unlawful, then the law won't protect you against retaliation. And so that's sort of the key moment. I think too many people don't understand that that moment. I want to move to what we had as the last listener question in the list, but I, I want to move to it now because what you just said really touches on this person's question. So an anonymous caller wrote in and wanted to know, what should I do if I work in an aggressive male-dominated workplace in which I've already tried to talk to HR about the conduct of my colleagues but have gotten no support? That is such a difficult one. I think there are a couple of avenues. At that point, you can seek out a lawyer. One thing that the civil rights laws, the anti-discrimination laws do provide is something called fee shifting. A plaintiff's lawyer can take a case, essentially knowing that if they win, the defendant will have to pay the plaintiff's attorney's fees. Mm. So that's a way to encourage people to come forward, right? When their case might not be worth a ton of money for a, a lawyer to take. But there will be some costs probably to going to a lawyer and you expose yourself, right? It's, this is a difficult thing to file a, an EEOC charge or eventually a lawsuit. Somebody's going to be looking into every aspect of your background. This is not an easy road. So people should know that. The other choice, of course, is to look for somewhere else to work. And sometimes that's actually the best advice we can give is to say, this seems like a lost cause you deserve better. And fortunately, we're in a buyer's market right now in terms of the labor market. So maybe you're in a position of power. Well, and I just want to say that someone that has been the victims of workplace discrimination or has been repeatedly harassed may not feel connected to their inherent value, right? Like they may have begun to devalue themselves. And so just for the person writing in, if you're in an environment where people are devaluing you and you're not being heard, that is the fault of the environment, not anything inherent to you as a person or your worth or your value. And so I think sometimes what I found is that people in these situations don't always know how burdensome and how painful it is until getting out of the situation. Right. Absolutely. And you can't see it when you're in the, the forest. It's very hard to see it until after. And it's hard to see how the harassment was impacting your ability to show up in the way that you normally would. You're a more productive worker. You're a more talented contributor to the workplace than that harassment is allowing you to show. 
You know, there's another anonymous question, which I think you answered the first part of it just now, but it's a two-part question. So I'm going to read the whole question. Someone wrote in and said, if someone listening to a podcast like this is themselves the victim of unwanted sexual advances or abuse, where should they start in seeking help? So that's the first part of the question. And then the second thing this person asks is, does the amount of time since the incident or incidents matter if someone wants to take action against their attacker? Right. So I think we've answered the first part, really, in terms of seeking out legal counsel when you need it. In terms of the timing, it does matter. The anti-discrimination laws actually give you a limited amount of time to file a charge of discrimination with the EEOC, Mm -hmm. uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the first step that you need to take before you can bring a lawsuit. You can't bring a lawsuit before going to the EEOC first. And so Typically, in general, you have only 180 days from the day the discrimination took place or the day the harassment took place. That 180 days can be extended to 300 days if there's a state or local agency enforcing a law that prohibits employment discrimination. But in general, it's the 180 days. And that then kicks it off. You file the EEOC charge, the EEOC can investigate, and then gives you what's called a right to sue letter. And then you can take that and you have a limited amount of time after you receive that to file a lawsuit. So this is not, you cannot wait five years and then come back to this. Right. And someone might think, well, 180 days, that's roughly half a year or something. That doesn't seem that short. But it it really is when someone is considering the implications to themselves, to their families, to their work-life balance, to their ability to earn money, to their ability to advance. I think sometimes people need time. Many times people are traumatized or in a state of shock or fight or flight. So 180 days isn't that long. And there are all kinds of reasons why a person might not want to report immediately. I mean, somebody who's actually in a position of some power in the organization might not want to expend their political capital on this. They might not decide to report until they see this happening to other people and realize it's not just me. And then they start to want to report. So there are all kinds of reasons, both traumatic reasons and also reasons of power that you might be holding on to this information for the moment. Transitioning, we have a couple of questions that center on allyship. And I think that one of the things that I've realized is that that is how culture shifts. Like it's not just the harasser and the person being abused. It's the bystanders. It's the rest of the people in the organization. And so one question that Clay from Queens wanted to know is if a colleague opens up to me about abuse that he or she or they have faced what should I do for them? So if a peer opens up about something, how can colleagues get involved to be supportive? In speaking to a victim of harassment that I did a program with, she basically said that she'd been harassed for over a year and coerced to have sex with her supervisor for a long time and just had become so small that she didn't see it as unlawful. And she finally confided in a colleague, colleague slash friend, who said, that's not okay. And it was the first time that somebody had said that to her. I can't remember the story exactly, but I think the colleague either went on his own to the supervisor and said, I know what you're doing and this is not okay and I'm going to report you, or went with her and just stood by her as 
someone else witnessing this and saying, this is not okay. And that really gave her the strength to report and to come forward. So being a good ally doesn't necessarily mean stepping out in front of the person. If they're not ready to report, you don't go ahead and do it for them. It's respecting where they are in the process, but I think reflecting back to them and saying, this is unacceptable. You shouldn't have to tolerate this. What can I do for you so that you can move forward? I think that's a more positive, supportive way to be. I love that. And building on that, Josh wrote in with a question, Josh from Pennsylvania wrote in saying, given that these issues of abuse seem to disproportionately impact women versus their male counterparts, how can men be better allies? So I know, Leora, you just shared about like what a man can do or a person can do of any gender if someone opens up to them about abuse that's happening, but whether or not someone is disclosing, how can people be better allies? How can men be better allies in creating cultures of gender equity and creating cultures where those power abuses aren't rampant? At the beginning of the Me Too movement, I think we were getting lots of these questions, not that kind, not Josh's question, but questions around, so now I can't say anything at work? This frustrated well, what if someone looks nice? I can't comment on it. Like, I'm just trying to be nice, right? Those kinds of comments. And I had some colleagues who would say like, well, just don't be creepy. But I don't think that that gives people enough information, right? So I have started to, to say to people, look, if you're a heterosexual man, for example, and you wouldn't make a comment to other men about their haircut or what they're wearing that day, then don't make those comments to women. That's sort of a way to check yourself. If you don't operate in general like that, then don't operate like that with the gender to which you are attracted. And what I'm trying to get at there is people in the workplace want to be valued for their work. Just keep that in mind. They don't want to be valued for their appearance. They don't want you to comment on those things, even if you're just being nice. Because what that says to them, the subtext is, that's all I see. And that's the problem. So if you can keep that in mind, comment on the work they've done. Comment on the report that they wrote. Comment on the great contribution to that meeting they made. Comment on how quickly they drove their route. Whatever it is, it's not about how they look. That's the key here. You know what I love about you sharing that, and thank you so much, is I think that that suggestion, that advice could be applied to settings that go far beyond work. If you're a parent going to a parental PTA meeting, comment on your the kids, on someone's volunteerism. If you happen to be meeting someone at a sporting event, talk about the sporting event, like talk about what brings you together, not necessarily talking about things that are extraneous that might make people really uncomfortable. And I think, look, you have to, context matters here, right? When I go out for drinks with a a friend and I love the blazer she's wearing, I'm going to tell her I love the blazer, right? I think that's, we understand that that's a different scenario than my boss commenting on my skirt. So context does matter. And the court, the Supreme Court has said context matters here. That's why there's no bright line for what is sexual harassment and what isn't. It is very case specific. But particularly in the work context, keeping in mind that people want to be valued for their work. You know, if someone has 
a pattern or they're listening to this and they're sort of noticing like, ooh, wow, like maybe I've made some blunders in the past, not necessarily harassment, but just knowing what they know now, they might want to change their behavior or improve. What's something that you could suggest for someone moving forward who might realize that some of their past behavior wasn't appropriate? Like how can they make that right and how can they move forward differently? That's actually a complicated question because normally you might apologize if you've recognized that something that you did was wrong, just apologize. But that gets tricky in the law because probably your boss doesn't want you apologizing for Mm. sexual harassment and admitting that you sexually harassed someone that might make the employer itself liable. So that's a tricky road. I think probably recognizing it internally and changing your behavior moving forward is the easiest answer I can give in order not to get people in trouble with their (laughs) own bosses. I appreciate that. I love that we started off and you talked about how someone who is the victim of workplace sexual harassment, they really need to know the laws and protect themselves. And I think that's also true of people who, I don't want to say like egregious acts of perpetration. I think we're all very clear that those are horrible. But if someone is walking around commenting on someone's haircuts and then realizes like, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing that and has their intent is in the right place, maybe just moving forward differently would be the best way to go. Yeah. Just stop. I guess I want to ask, you mentioned having events and leading a training, co-facilitating a training. Like what is one thing that you would really just love for people to take away around this issue that you think would improve workplace culture, period? I really wish that people understood that when workers come forward to complain, that's a good sign that's a sign that you have a healthy workplace. Don't get defensive. Don't put up walls at that point. Don't try to cover it up or push it down. Someone feeling comfortable enough to come forward and report means you're doing something right and appreciate that and then deal with it appropriately. That's the moment of mistake that I think most people make. Look, it's natural. It's human nature, right? We want to not hear bad things, or we want to push them away, or we want to deny, or when we're personally accused of something, if you're accused of being a bigot, you get your walls up, especially if you don't think it's true. And you sort of stay away from the person or you push them away. But all those things can amount to retaliation. And so trying to be open to those reports and think, okay, if this person came forward, that means we are doing something right. Now let's handle this well. I think that's the best advice I can give. I know too, we've mentioned retaliation, a number of things. How do you define that from a legal standpoint? Because I just think it's important to talk about like what that might look like or what that might mean. Yeah, it can mean any kind of adverse action in the workplace, right? So it can mean a demotion is the clearest, right? Or losing some kind of pay or benefits. But it can even mean you're being transferred to some other office that you didn't want to be in, or you are losing professional development opportunities. You're not included in the team anymore. You're not sent out to the client anymore. Things that might be beneficial to your career are no longer happening. So all of those things can actually amount to retaliation in the, you know, in the right circumstance. Thank you so much for that, Leora. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you'd want to share? I just think that 
It's important to understand that sexual harassment is both a civil rights issue and a business issue. I came to it as a civil rights issue because sexual harassment makes it impossible for victims to be equal contributors in society. And we don't want that, right? That's what civil rights are about, that we can all participate equally in the society. But it's also a business issue for that same reason, because ignoring it will almost certainly have a negative effect on your bottom line, right? You're losing a significant portion of your talent pool or your ability to recruit talent or eventually your brand reputation and your consumer base, right? You don't want that to happen to your workplace. You don't want to lose that talent. You don't want to make those workers unproductive. So this is not just a discrimination issue. This is not just a civil rights issue. This is a financial issue. And and the sooner companies recognize that, the better off they'll be. Yeah. And I mean, a a societal issue. Like if we look at this and you think about certain individuals, I mean, one of the, the people, Liz Taylor, talked about how women leaving the sport industry in droves as a result of the rampant harassment or not advancing to a certain level as a result of the power dynamics that happen. And that that shapes future generations and what people believe is possible and who's at the tables making decisions, which then changes outcomes in a number of cases. And so like, if we really want to be part of an inclusive, equitable society, we have to create workplace cultures where people can feel safe to embody themselves and show up and not feel like they're going to be targets or be made to be uncomfortable or unsafe or to make themselves smaller in some way in order to avoid that visibility. Right. Or even just see themselves reflected in that industry. Thinking about sports, I, I was I was once at a physical therapy session and next to me was this 80-year-old woman getting physical therapy and she could not have been a more avid Eagles fan. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, if the sports industry forgets that women are half the consumer base. These are your customers. These are the people who are watching the games, right? Don't alienate them. It's bad for business to do that. So yes, of course, it is a societal issue. It is a civil rights issue. And it is certainly a financial issue. Well, you know, Leora, I feel like we could sit here and talk for the rest of the day about this and still not be done because there's so much and you're clearly a wealth of information and resources. If people are listening to this and they want to get in contact with you, they want to read more of your work or just learn more about what you're doing on this issue or within Sedwick in general, how can they connect with you? So they can go to the Sedwick, the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture website. And I have actually a bunch of my op-eds and research is available on that website. So it's www.fox.temple.edu backslash Sedwick, C-E-D-W-C. Awesome. And we will put a link to that in the show notes for anyone who couldn't write that quickly. We will, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. Just lastly, you know, at the beginning, I asked why you do this work. And I think we did touch on this, but why should others be in really invested personally in this, whatever their gender? I just think that if we ignore workplace harassment, we're giving up on a large portion of talented workers in the population. And we don't want to do that, right? It's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. And it, it certainly will make society a better place to live.
Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for all that you're doing. Listeners, make sure to check out the link and go to Sedwick and read Leora's op-eds about this specific topic and also about all that Sedwick is doing, including sponsoring and partnering with the Demystifying Diversity podcast, because they really are working to create more collaborative, more inclusive workplace cultures. And we're excited to see those developments happening in a better workplace for future generations than for past generations. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? I thought Leora's interview was incredible. I love speaking with her. And it's so clear that she has deeply studied this issue and comes at it both from a place of empathy and a place of practicality. And that for me made a significant impact and really changed my understanding of this topic. So I'd love to ask you, Azaria and Zach, how has this episode, whether it be the main episode or just the section of my interview with Leora, how has that changed your understanding of this topic or inspired you to take action towards this issue? I would say for me, it just informed me of just how my opinion broken our legal system is. I'm sure there are many reasons why the law is set up the way it is, but I personally think it shouldn't be as hard as it is for one, something to be defined as sexual harassment. And two, I think it shouldn't be as hard to report it. And so I think that is the broken piece of our legal system for me that there are, and having Lior as my boss, her and I have had several conversations about how something is defined as sexual harassment that is actually worth taking through the legal system. But even Leora had mentioned that someone who is looking to report their incident of sexual harassment or incidents of sexual harassment, if they're unsure, they should start by speaking with an attorney. And even though that's an option. There are so many people who for their own reasons just feels like another hurdle to go through when it's already taking so much courage to come forward and say something. And now I have to like talk to an attorney. So, and not everybody is going to have access to that or even know where to start. And so I think that it just, it really just revealed to me that our legal system for victims of sexual harassment and other forms of harassment could be better. What about you, Zach? So for me, one of the things that I took away the most from that an increased knowledge of those dynamics in the workplace harassment and its difference from harassment outside of the workplace and how that element of power and financial stability plays a major role. I kind of always knew it from a stance of someone trying to get ahead and someone trying to take advantage of being able to promote somebody. But that was kind of the only lens that I really paid attention to or frequently heard in the media. And this dove a lot deeper in understanding that that different power dynamic. I mean, clearly for me, if I was in a scenario being harassed by someone who had a financial implication on my future, especially being an entrepreneur, I don't know how I would approach that scenario, what my reaction would be. I would hope allies in that scenario or someplace to go to for assistance. But even so, 
that made me think of what is this dynamic for people in this when you are uh, an entrepreneur and you are being harassed, there is no HR department, there is no resource for you in that space. So it was kind of eye-opening to see those other elements and how it differs from harassment that might take place elsewhere. I think Lior gave an example of not really being a victim and gave a story of how someone just next to her, not nothing work-related, touched her or something along those lines. And there wasn't really that any sort of action she could do or no professional recourse that she could have as if it were in a workplace environment. Understanding the severity of workplace harassment and how many other implications that has was definitely eye-opening to me from from hearing Leora speak. And of course, I piggyback what you said, Azaria, on the legal side of it and how I think there needs to be some change there. I think it's it has to escalate to a pretty significant level for it to be something where the legal powers can actually have an impact. Whereas before, when we listened to the initial episode, we understood that you have to nip it in the bud early as soon as it happens because it can escalate. It almost seems like for there to be legal ramification, it has to escalate. And I think that just causes more trauma in the process. I'm so glad that you highlighted that tension because it is something where from a legal standpoint, intervention might not be able to happen where someone is able to be punished under the law until it gets severe. But within an organizational culture, early intervention is critical. So I think HR departments, corporations, they need to institute these policies of no tolerance, kind of like early intervention, upstander-based policies. And then nothing really ever has to rise to the level of a necessary legal intervention. So I think it is an important tension to look at, but the law is there to protect people when they're not getting those protections elsewhere. But if companies put structures into place so that intervention is immediate and swift and people feel safe and supported, then I don't think people won't need to go the legal route. And so I think that's all for the better. But then if you work at an organization where there aren't those protections, yeah, to your point, like it does become more traumatizing. And I'm glad, Zach, too, that you pointed out how the experience can be different for someone who's self-employed versus someone who might work at an organization where there are HR departments. And I'll share that in my work, I've been inappropriately propositioned a number of times since becoming self-employed. And I'll say that before I was older and more established and had more financial agency, it was harder to navigate. And in most cases, was able to avoid what could have been really egregious situations. And if I hadn't been self-employed, I'm not sure if I'd have had that same agency, but I could definitely see it going either way, being self-employed and feeling like you have no protection and need to pay your bills or having it be where working for a corporation feeling like, oh, well, I don't have the ability to say no to these situations because I'm within this culture and within this organization. So I think that's something really to think about the tension that entrepreneurs are up against and then the tension that employees are up against. And I'm curious whether those listening are working for themselves, working for organizations, you know, whatever their industry Are there any tangible things that the two of you are hoping that our listeners can do differently? Going back to something I mentioned and and really enjoyed from the overall episode was learning those five D's and how to be able to help others when they notice someone being harassed. 
I think that's definitely something I'd say, you know, most haven't heard before and hopefully can take from this episode and adopt into their daily practices and be vigilant of their surroundings and their colleagues so that they can be an aid whenever possible. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, Myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. I have a similar response, but I have two responses. So my first one, assuming that we have business leaders listening, I would love for organizations to start viewing their leadership as being just as dispensable as they tend to view lower level employees And by that, I mean, I think oftentimes, and this is anecdotal, I don't have facts behind this, but in my opinion, I think part of the issue for victims whose perpetrators are CEOs of businesses or top management is that if slash when those complaints come forward, the board or whoever is reviewing the complaints looks at this CEO or whoever it might be in this higher position and says, Maybe we'll we'll profile and then we'll wait to see if it happens again because we can't lose him, he or her or they, whoever it might be. We can't lose them because they bring so much value, so much profit to our company. But the same way that you would view a lower level employee as more dispensable because you can get more of them, you can also get a new CEO. It would not be the easiest process, but For something like sexual harassment, it shouldn't take multiple complaints to take it seriously and to really hold someone accountable for their actions. So that comes off a little harsh, but the reality is that's how employees are viewed. Uh, You can leave the job tomorrow and that position could easily be filled within a week. And I know that's not the same process for top management, but again, I just think that as an organization, there's more value in losing a top leader and having to deal with the struggle of replacing them, but then replacing them with someone who is partaking in sexual harassment behavior, then there is value in keeping them and seeing how that toxicity spreads throughout your organization. So yeah, CEOs, top leaders, they are also dispensable and they should be removed from your organization if they are doing such egregious acts as sexual harassment or other forms of harassment. So that's one. And then the other thing that Zach touched on, which is just how to be an ally in this situation. Stephanie Vogt talked about the fact that 
after all of her struggles started becoming a bit more public, she had male coworkers come up to her and say, hey, you know what? That did make me feel uncomfortable when I witnessed that happening to you. And I think it was great that they finally came out and said something, but it would be great if in that moment when you see it happening, that you were to take action, be it one of the five D's, right? It doesn't have to be approaching the person face-to-face and being like, hey, stop that. There are ways around it. So part of that is us educating people, which those five D's are very helpful with that. But I don't think more responsibility should be placed on victims than already is. And I think that those of us around who are witnessing this, it is just as much our responsibility to take action as it is the responsibility of the victim to report when they are ready. That's a responsibility that's unfortunately placed on them. And then it's also just as much as it is the responsibility of the person doing the act to not be doing it, right? So we all have responsibility in this. And I think that as people witnessing these acts, it's on us if we ignore that. I mean, that's someone's livelihood, someone's mental health, someone's job being jeopardized. And we shouldn't be comfortable just staying silent on that. So I hope that people feel empowered from this to say, you know what, I'm going to start paying attention and doing what I can when I can. I'm so glad that you mentioned the element of power. I think one of the things that I was hoping people would take away from this episode is that sexual abuse and harassment is really about a lot more than sex. You know, sex might be the place where that vulnerability is demonstrated and capitalized upon, but it's really an issue of power and an issue of culture. And so I'm just wondering, Azaria, if you could maybe speak for a few moments about how privilege, inequity, and the intersectionality of identity, whether it be race, gender, disability, et cetera, really makes sexual abuse and harassment more complicated and perhaps a more difficult thing to extricate themselves from than individuals of more privileged identities. Absolutely. I think the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that privilege equals options. You have more options when you have more privilege. And so let's say, for example, you have a woman who is at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, is a single mother, works three jobs, right? These are all like very extreme instances, but there are several people who that is their reality. At all, if not at least one of the jobs that you are at, you are experiencing some harassment. You know that leaving that job means you might not be able to afford food for your child. When you think about maybe the job is that you're working at a fast food chain, right? And you already know how society views people who work at a fast food chain as your voice, your thoughts, your opinions don't matter. Your experiences don't really matter. You're just here to serve me. You go into work every single day having that knowledge in mind that that's how society views and treats people in your position. Why would you feel empowered to then step up and one, risk your job and your ability to pay for your children and yourself and your needs. But then two, when you can probably assume that you won't be taken seriously because I'm just a fast food worker. And I'm not saying that's everyone's thought process. Maybe someone working at a fast food chain who has experienced sexual harassment is very confident in going forward and will do that. And that's great. But when you add all of these compounding factors to someone's identity, they don't have as many options Should they lose that job? Should they face retaliation? Whereas someone with privilege in their different layers of identity and a lot of privilege, 
you have more options. You might be able to be like, hey, well, I'm going to just walk away from this job if it's not working for me or if someone's treating me poorly. But that's not something that a lot of people can do comfortably. So I think it's really important to talk about the fact that there is privilege at play in these situations all the time. And that is why earlier I said we need to be also elevating the stories of the housekeeper at a hotel who oftentimes there's a large demographic of housekeepers who come from other countries who might not speak English very well. And so then you add that factor in on the already complex factor of having to report something like this happening. So I think that that, that's something we have to account for because Again, it almost feels like in every movement to empower and elevate victims of oppression, racism, sexual harassment, there's still always a demographic that we are silencing because we don't, as a society, already acknowledge their experience as valuable. So that's just something to think about. Privilege is a huge part of this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. You know, I think we could talk about this topic for, as you said earlier, an entire season, right? And still not be done. And um, if you're listening to this, we would love to hear your listener thoughts and questions about the hashtag me too episode. We would love to hear your thoughts and questions about any element of diversity, equity, and inclusion or experience pertaining to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. So please write us or call us. FYI, for those who do write in and call in, we're going to be giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity at every Q&A episode. We draw a name at random from callers, listeners, people who subscribe to our newsletter. And Azaria, do you want to do the honor of announcing the winner for this episode? Absolutely. I would love to give a special congratulations to Lealia Williams, who is one of the podcast's newsletter subscribers. Congratulations. Congratulations. Awesome. Awesome. And of course, thank you so much to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter, those who call in, uh, and of course, write us questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook. We're also on LinkedIn. We'll be answering some of your uh, calling questions there, too. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. And of course, to uh, the listeners everywhere, uh, all over the world, we are listened to in more than 50 countries. So again, we thank you so much for your continued support. Yes. And if you would like to learn more about today's expert, Leora Eisenstadt, please click on the links provided. You'll learn about Leora's work, her publications. Also, you will learn about our center, Sedwick. Also, make sure to visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and our other DEI services. And the newsletter is one of my favorite things because we announce episodes each week as they drop. And also this season, we're doing a lot more on social media. So please make sure to connect with us there. We're answering some listener questions that we don't have time for in the episodes or or that might not necessarily fit in with the topics that we're speaking about. But we want to make sure to get to everyone's questions and to be as engaged as possible. So connect with Sedwick, connect with us at the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, get your employers engaged, or if you're an employer, hopefully this podcast will support you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture.
And as always, every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, with Azaria Keys, assistant director of Sedwick, co-producer and coordination consultant, with Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Stuart Crane's production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, who is our content editor and creative collaborator. And the music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again to Leora Eisenstadt and to you, our listener, and to all the voices on the main episode and Zach and Azaria. This was really great. And if you're listening to this, please join us next week where we'll be talking about coming out at work, stepping out of the corporate closet. You won't want to miss that episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. 